Morning, church. Morning, church. Can you hear me? All right, great. Morning, everyone. So lovely to hear everyone chatting away um, and trying to, you know, been a bit of a fight to break away from talking to each other. This is what it should be like uh, in, in the house of God. So welcome, everyone. It's good to see your faces this morning. What a wonderful time we've had in the presence of God, just worshiping Him and um, just realizing that he, it's all about Him and not about us. Uh, my name is Tommy. If this is your first time today, uh, I give you a warm welcome. Um, I'll be taking you through um, Ephesians chapter 5 today. We've been working our way through Ephesians over the past um, few weeks. And now we um, have reached a, a passage um, that I have um, that has spoken a lot to me, and I want to bring and share what I've um, sort of been chewing on um, over the past um, few weeks on this uh, passage. So last week, Tom talked about living a life of contrast as what the gospel means to us and what it draws us to do. And this week, we're going to learn about what type of life we should walk and why we should walk um, in this type of life. So I'm going to be reading from Ephesians 5, if you have your Bible. Um, if you don't, there will be a, a display to um, show you. So I'll be reading from Ephesians 5, 1 to 17. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be, become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are in the light. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to God. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you because your word is powerful and it is sharper than any two-edged blade. And we just pray, Lord, that as your word comes today, that it will pierce our heart and that you will speak to us at the very core of our beings and that we will, we will become transformed to be the people that you want us to be in this world. We thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so this passage begins with a word, therefore. Now, I like to sort of go back whenever I'm reading the Bible and it says, therefore, I like to go back to say, um, what is it talking about? What is the context? Because therefore is another way of saying for this reason, right? So last week, Tom took us through 
what it means to be um, you know, in the kingdom of God. What are the sort of expectations for us? And it says that um, we are to be people whose life is not lived like the people of the world. Our relationship with the things of the world change. And so today it's saying that we should be imitators of God. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, the first two verses in this chapter, I think we could spend an entire sermon on. So packed. And I'm just going to unpack a little bit what is sort of in these loaded verses. It says, be imitators of God as beloved children. What are we, what is it about God that we are to imitate? Number one. Number two. How come we are children of God? Why are we children of God? And what does it mean to be a child of God? We are very blasé in our day and age. I'm a child of God. We sing it. I am a child of God. or I'm a friend of God. And it's kind of like a blasé thing Christians do. And as I sort of meditated on this, I begin to think more about, who is this God that is my father? Every single person in the kingdom of God is a child of God. And what this means is that your father is the one that the Bible described in 1 Timothy um, verses 16. It says that he is the one that dwells in inaccessible light. He is the immortal God. In Ezekiel, it describes God as the one whom is encircled by these beams, these beams of light that the Bible describes as seraphs. In Ezekiel 1, 27 to 28. He is the one that is described in Isaiah's vision as the one that sat on the throne. Where you have these beings with six wings. Beings of fire. That is what the word seraph is. Seraphs are, in Bible terms, the highest forms of angel you can get. If you, you can't get any past seraph. If you become an angelic seraph, then you know you've made it as an angel. <laughs> these beings, seraph is another word for light or fire. And they stand before the presence of God. And they fly with two wings and they cover their body and their feet with two wings. And with the other two wings, they cover their face. And they, they continually just call, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They can't look into this being that is God sat on the throne. Daniel in his vision said, I saw one sat on the throne. The ancient of days, whose hair was like pure wool. And his clothes was white as snow. And he was sat on a throne that was issuing fires. Just wheels of fire. There was just turning, twisting wheels beneath his thrones that were just shooting out fires. And it says in Revelation, John saw the vision of God. As one having the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Which is like, a, like ruby, like a red color. And from his throne, those flashings of lightning and peals of thunder. And there were four creatures around the throne, the seraphs again. And all they kept saying, every single moment was holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Who was, who is, and who is to come. This is, this is the God that calls himself our father. There are three children who were in this really, really posh private school. The poshest private school you could ever think about. 
And one of them said, my mother is the queen of the United Kingdom and the territories. And the other two kids said, well, that's quite impressive. The second kid said, my father is Elon Musk, the wealthiest man in the entire world. And the other two kids said, well, that's very, very impressive. And the third kid said, my father is the one that beings of fire dare not look into lest they be ruined. My father is the one that has a deed to a million galaxies. You are that third kid if you are in the kingdom of God. That's what it means when it says God is our father. This is the family that we come from. How do we come into this family? Because you might be asking yourself this question. Well, really? I, I'm, am I a child of that awesome God? I, I know my I'm just down the street. I, I, I live in Woodbridge Road. So how, how, how is it that I'm a part of this family? It says in verses 2, And walk in love as Christ loved us and loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The way we come into the kingdom of God is not by anything that we have done or anything in ourselves. It happened through the fragrant offering and sacrifice of God. So a couple of weeks ago, we went through um, the, the you know, uh, Easter Sunday, and we talked about the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we celebrated it. And what is so awesome about that experience was that Christ, what I, as I pondered on this, and I thought, which part of that sort of hurt Christ the most? Was it the, the, the cause of guilt when he was innocent? Was it the, the spear that was thrust in the side? Was it nails in his hand? Was it the accusation of people saying, if you are the son of God, come down? What was the most sort of crushing part of that for Christ? And as I pondered more and more on that, I realized Christ, I remembered Christ saying to Pilate, if my kingdom of this, of, was of this world, I will my, I'll call my servants and they'll take care of business. That was a threat. That's Christ saying, I could completely destroy Jerusalem with a couple. But he actually said, I could get, ask a legion a legion is overkill in military terms, especially when you're talking about angels. And so Christ had the power to call on heavenly backup. And not just that, God had the power to call on heavenly backup to rescue Christ. And you knew that as Christ hung on that cross, he waited and waited and waited. And the Father says, no, my will is that you will die on that cross. He waited and waited. And you could, you could almost picture the angels almost looking at God and saying, give the command. Just, 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 give, just whisper the word. Don't have to shout it. Just whisper the word. And we will take care of business. And nothing happened. Silence. Until the point Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Heaven rejected him. And through his rejection, you became accepted into the kingdom. That's how you became children of this awesome father. It came at an extremely high cost. And the reason why I've said this before us is because these two things, our father, our heavenly father, our awesome father, and the way we come into his family are the two chief, the, the two principal uh, motivator of a Christian's life. And we must always set this before us if we um, want to walk the life that God has called us to walk. And it says, 
be imitators of God. What is it about God worth imitating? Deuteronomy 10, 17 to 19 says, For the Lord your God is God of God and Lord and God of gods and Lord of Lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. We've just heard about his awesomeness. And then it says, the, Who is not partial and takes no bribe? He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And then Moses then instructs the people of, of Israel and says to them, Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Moses is basically saying what we're reading in Ephesians here. Be imitators of this God. He's an awesome God. Terrific in power. But he takes no bribe. He's not partial. He cares about the helpless. He's concerned for the fatherless, for the stranger that comes into a foreign land and is like, I'm on my own. All I have is you know, a couple of dollars in my pocket and a bag. God cares about that person. This is the kind of God that we are to imitate. This is what we need to imitate about God. Growing up, my mother always said something to me. Key stages in my life. And sometimes when I, I've messed up, she will say something to me. And she says it in my um, sort of traditional, my, my mother tongue. She, she said to me, Roti omoti iwoje, which means, remember the son of whom you are. It was a very loaded way of saying so much in such a short space of time. Remember the son of whom you are, which means remember the family that you are representing. And these words ring in my mind. It ring in my mind. All the time when I go to certain places, I'm in certain contexts, I, I always remember this word. Why? Because I don't just represent myself. I represent people that have come before me and that have gone. I am standing as a representative of my own earthly family. And so I can't carry myself anyway. I can't interact and speak with people anyway. I have to meet a certain standard. I have to, I come from a family and I have to represent them. I can't bring shame upon them. So this forms my identity at a very deep level. What God is saying to you today, remember the child of whom you are. You are not a child of an earthly father, an earthly parent. You are the child of the most high God, the one that 24 elders in heaven throw their golden crowns like it was dirt before him. That is the child of whom you are. That is the family you come from. And this should inform our identity and cause us to do three things. It should cause us to, number one, to walk in love, to walk in light, and to walk in wisdom. In Ephesians 5, 2, we see the instruction to walk in love. Now, I love the English language. Some people say the English language is a mongrel language because it has everything in it, Right? But one thing the English language, although it has so much in it, it missed. It missed um, the distinction between the words or the meaning of the word love. And I think the English language, if there's something that we can do to change the English language, I think this should be it. I wish Shakespeare did more about this. In the Greek language, you have three forms of love. You have the romantic love, the 
an eros type love, you have the familial type of love, the filial type of love, and then you have agape love, which is the selfless, self-giving, sacrificial love. And that is the kind of love that Paul is talking about when he says walk in love. He's talking about walking in sacrificial love, love that costs. It says in, in 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love who does not love does not know God because God is love. God himself is the origin of agape love. This isn't something human beings came up with. This isn't something that human beings sort of, you know, we, we figured out. God is love. He is the very essence of love. And we cannot claim to be family or, or members of his family if we're not walking in sacrificial love. This is the kind of love that we see in Deuteronomy, where it says that you should have compassion on the helpless, that seeks after the outcasts of society, people who have been pushed to the margins, either through their own faults or through the faults of others. You might know people in your life that have gone to prison, people who are homeless, people who, through decisions of their life, have, have found themselves in really dark areas. The Bible says that we are to go after them. And we see that even in our church. I'm so glad I'm part of a church who um, we believe this at a very deep level. We um, carry out works of um, with, uh, social causes in, in our town, looking after those who um, are, are, are needy and need help. And we see even in our, in our, 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 society, in our socializing with one another, where sometimes we've raised money for people within the context of the church that need the money. And so we practice this. And God is saying to us, I want you to be imitators of me in love. Walk in love. Walk in love that costs you. The second thing is, walking in love is not playing it nice and safe. Um, Tim Virgo a few weeks ago talked about um, how as Christians we're called not to play it safe and nice. We have um, two commandments in our secular society. The first commandment is this are this are commandment that sort of overarch every other thing. And the first commandment is this: Thou shalt be nice. The second commandment is this: Thou shalt not rock the boat. These two commandments so prevalent in our society. We don't we haven't codified it, but this is what we operate by. If you saw a bloke in the middle of the street and you saw a 10 ton truck coming at him, what would be your reaction? Hey, oh, I don't want to say anything. Or would you scream as hard and as loud as you can because you care that that person is not obliterated? That's what love looks like. Love isn't this sort of passive, oh, kind of go my way. I know that you might be falling down the stairs, but I'll kind of go, that's not love. We confuse niceness for love. It's not the same thing. Love compels us to act on behalf of someone else. Even if it costs us. Do you have friends, family members? Do you have colleagues, people you grew up with? You know they're not work, walking with the Lord? What does love compel you to do? 
share the gospel with them. Doesn't mean you have to sort of lock them in a room and then turn on a, a gospel sermon to them and say, you're not going to get out of there. That's not what I'm talking about. Share the gospel with them. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. If you are not family in the kingdom of God, if you are not family members of God, then how can it be loving when you don't give your, your friends, your loved ones, the opportunity to become part of this family? Now, you might be nice, but are you loving? Christ was an, a perfect example of walking in love. He could have played it safe. He called out the established Jewish culture and religion of his day. He could have played it safe and toned it down. He mingled with, with Samaritans while still reminding them of their sin. He didn't say, well, because I'm hanging out with you, I'm just going to hush-hush on that. No, 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 it's just we'll hang out. But you've got to walk in the truth. You've got to walk in light. You've got to come to the Father through me. He mingled with prostitutes while still telling them to sin no more. People say, oh, Christ, look at Christ. See, the prostitute said, don't stone the prostitute. Correct. But he said to the prostitute, don't walk in sin anymore. He spoke the truth about his identity as a son of God, and they killed him for it. He could have played it very safe. But then he wouldn't be loving, would it? Number two. The second thing our identity as children of God causes us to do is to walk in the light. Ephesians 5, uh, 3 to 9, we read um, in verses 3 that sexual immorality and all impurity, covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among sin. Paul goes first to the negative. What walking in the light does not look like is walking in this sense. You can't say you're walking in the light if this is a, a, a permanent fixture of your life. It does not involve sexual morality, filthy speech, crude jokes. And Paul says, don't deceive yourself. These things don't bring God's blessing. You can lie to yourself as much as you want. But if you practice these things, they actually bring God's judgment. That's what it says in verse 6. We live in a culture that excuses so much of what grieves God's heart. We make excuses for sexual impurity, sexual acts outside of the context of marriage. Well, this, is a, this is a hot button issue in our day and age. We make excuses for crude jokes. Oh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a grown person now, so I can, I can make that joke. Or in the context of our work environment, I don't want to look too stiff, so I'm going to laugh at that joke. I'm going to indulge in it. We are children of the light. We shouldn't feel comfortable with sexual immorality, sexual impurity, with crude words and crude jokes. It, we shouldn't be comfortable, and people should know that we are not comfortable with it. It's important that we don't buy into the words world's philosophy on sexual ethics. It says in 1 John 1.5, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness. There is no ambiguity. That's a very key word. God isn't the kind of person where you're like, God, do you mean this? And you're like, mm, 
I'm not quite sure. God is basically like, this is how I want you to live, and this is how I don't want you to live. There is no darkness. There is no shadow. There is no ambiguity in God. There's light. And what is light primarily for? Light helps us to find or, 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 or walk from point A to point B without smashing our face on the floor. That's what light is primarily there for. We can't eat light. We can't drink it. But we wouldn't live very long if we don't have light or some type of light to guide us around the place. And when it says God is light, that means God is the standard of all ethics. God is light. Is From him, all ethics, all morality, all truth exudes, comes out of. We live in a day and age where we have so many philosophers, so many clever people, so many big people who know so much about so little. I didn't create the earth. Perhaps there's someone in this room who made the earth. I didn't create the heavens. Perhaps there's someone in this room that knows something about making the heavens. And I, I thought about this. I thought maybe there was something like, I didn't even add a molecule of water to the oceans of the earth. I can't go to the oceans of the earth and go, oh, there's one molecule of H2O there that I contributed to. No human being did that. But yet, when God says something, we say, oh, hold that thought there, oh God, creator of heavens and earth. Oh, ancient of days, do you know how long I've been around this earth for? 52 years. How insulting. So we, because we, we've gone to university, I have two PhDs. Two PhDs. And so we, we put our own ethics over God. The one that invented the mathematics of the universe. Like it was nothing. And we want to put our own ethics above his ethics. We must be careful that in our bid to be nice, to be in our day and age inclusive, we do not stand in contempt and in judgment of our God's ethics. Very careful about that. If you've created a universe, then you know what? I'll say you can challenge God then. But until then, let God be God. Number two, to walk in the light means we are to be the same person that we are in our house as we are when we are standing in the public with a thousand eyes watching us. That's what it means to walk in the light, to be the same when you're alone and nobody's looking at you and when you are in a place where everyone is looking at you. And we can help ourselves walk in the light. We can facilitate that. That's why the Bible says that do not give up coming together. Why? Because you want to be in a place where people are encouraging you and you're encouraging them. But if you are living your Christianity by yourself in this isolated state, you wouldn't walk in victory. You will walk from sin to sin. And your life will be a mess. That means that when there's opportunities to come to prayer meetings, let us have prayer meetings be as packed as the church is today. This is, 
I understand now, some people have kids, yeah? I have kids too, can be challenging and all that. So I'm not saying, if you're not here because you have to look at your kid and you're bad, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that any opportunity to walk alongside your brothers and sisters in Christ, take up the opportunity. It will help you walk in the light. Life groups, we heard about life groups. Sign up to a life group. It's an opportunity to walk with Christians. It says in Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpens iron as one man sharpens another. What that means is that if you're walking alongside people who are sharp, who are of the light, you will be like the light. But if you're walking with darkness, you will be like darkness. I will go as far as say, and this, this will be controversial, but that's fine. <laughs> I will go as far as say that your closest friend, if you're married, apart from your wife, your closest friend should be a Christian, a, a, a person who is sold out for God. And I, I say this, this is, not, this is not legalism. Please hear what I'm trying to say. The people who are closest to us, that are most intimate to us, are the people who have the greatest ability to impact and to influence us. It says in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 15, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership is righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord as Christ with Belial, which is Satan? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What this means is that if you are in such an intimate relationship with someone who is not of the light, it is easier for them to drag you down into the darkness than you are to bring them into the light. This is very true. Do not be deceived. If I am standing on top of the stage and there's someone at the bottom there, it is easier for the person at the bottom to pull me down than for me to pull them up because they are working with gravity and I'm working against gravity. The concept is the same here. If you want to walk in the light, walk with people who are in the light. It will help you. You don't have all the strength by yourself. That's why God tells us, fellowship together, come together. It's for your own good. The third one, walk in wisdom. Ephesians 5, 15 to 17. Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. There are two primary ways we get wisdom. The first way we get wisdom comes from the knowledge of God. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In Proverbs 9, 10. And knowledge of the only one is insight, or in some translation, is understanding. You see, what it means to fear God really, is to know that he is present. That's what it means to fear God. Now, if, you, if we have parents, some of us are, are old here, so our parents might have you know, um, passed on. Some of us are younger, so we might still have parents around. If your parents was in, in a room, there's certain things that you probably wouldn't do. Right? There are certain ways you conduct yourself. That's what it means to fear your parents. It doesn't mean, oh my God, I can't say this. No, no. It, it, it means to have some type of respect. My parents are in the mind. I can't do that. That's what it means to fear God. And God is present in the room, not in the way a mouse is present in a room. 
God is present in the room the way an elephant is present in the room. If there was an elephant in this room, you cannot ignore it. You can't, well, I'm just going to turn my eyes. You can't turn your eyes anywhere. It's going to be there. That's how God is present. God is everywhere, and he sees all. There is nothing that is opaque or, or, or unclear to him. We are the ones that convince ourselves God doesn't see. Have you ever played with little kids, and they cover their eyes, and they think, I've disappeared. That's what humans do. That's what humans do when we pretend God isn't there. We lie to ourselves. And secondly, wisdom comes from the knowledge that our time on earth is very short. And that at the end of it, we will give an accounting to God. Psalms 90, 92 says, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our ears to an end like a sigh. The years of our lives are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and the wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may apply our heart to wisdom. You see, if I said to you, I've spoken with God, and God said to me, you have five years. Or let's not say I did. You heard directly from God that you've got five years to live. What would that make you do? You would live with purpose. But I've got five years? You won't. I, I, I can't waste my time with that. I've got five years to do. At the end of that five years, I've got to give an accounting to the one that created me. You would live with purpose. That's what it means to live with wisdom. You're not just walking around aimlessly. Jonathan Edwards, the philosopher, theologian, who was very crucial in the Great Awakening um, in America in the mid-1700s, says that he resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I can. That's a wise man. That's a man that says, I have to make sure every hour counts. The people who spend their time wisely are the people who make it their business to daily discern the will of God. It says in verse 10, it says, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. We must be people that try to figure out what is pleasing to the Lord. Because when we figure out what's pleasing to the Lord, then we know, how do I use my time? It's important that we understand what God's will is for our life. And some people will come and say, can I know what God's will is for my marriage? Shall I buy a PS4 or Xbox 360? Can I, shall I support Ipswich or Manchester United? A bit questionable now, but there are certain things that we ask. Should I get married to this person? Should I even get married now? Should I go to this university? The Bible can help us answer all those questions. You're saying, really? Is there an FAQ at the back end of the Bible that has all those questions detailed out? That's not true. But it says in Romans 12, 1, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. What the Bible does to us is it begins to shape how we see the world. It begins to help us to see what is priority to God and what is not priority to God. And so when we start making these decisions, we are able to say, when it comes to marrying a wife, it's not 
oh my goodness, all the guys are chasing after her. It's, what kind of, she's got such a wonderful character. The things she says she wants for her children, those are the kind of things I want. She, she wants to serve in the church. And, and I was like, wow, that's, that's attractive to me. Why? Because your mind is now transformed. That's how you answer the question. That's how you become wise. And so in conclusion, what do we say? The more our minds are transformed by the word of God, the more we walk in wisdom and are able to discern the will of God. Now, the more we know and are able to discern the will of God, the more we begin to walk in the light. And the more we walk in the light, the more we find that we are walking in love. And the more we walk in love, the more we find that we are becoming more and more like our Heavenly Father. So they all cascade into one another. Are you here and you say, I want to be part of this family. The family, as it says in the Bible, of the firstborn. Christ being the firstborn. And it says Christ is the firstborn because he's the firstborn from the dead. And he's exalted now in the highest part of heaven. Do you want to be part of this family? Do you want to have a destiny that lasts forever? There's an opportunity here. It starts here. Christ says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. If you want to be part of the Father, then you need to come through Christ. There's going to be opportunities for us um, to pray. Today I'm going to invite the, um, the worship team to come up. And I want us today to, to pray if you are part of this kingdom. And some of the words I spoke, I've spoken today sort of struck your heart. I want you to, to commune with God and say, I want to walk in your love. I want to walk in your light. I don't want to deceive myself for saying, I can, I can do that. I want to walk in wisdom. I want to use the time. I want us to resolve today. Make a decision today within ourselves. That I want to walk in wisdom so that if I live for 40 years, or if I live for 90 years, and when God comes and I'm standing before God, I can say, I used the time wisely. Let us make that resolution today, church. So, Father, I thank you because you are the one that gives wisdom to those who ask, and you are the light of the world. Father, we just pray. For all those here in here who are resolving today to walk a life of love, a life in the light, a life in wisdom, I pray, Lord, that you will grant them the grace, Father. Give them wisdom, Lord. Give us wisdom. We thank you because you do far much more than we ask of you. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.